Thank you for listening to the Wealth Amplifier podcast. As a reminder, the goal of this podcast is to amplify a person, topic, or idea. On some episodes, members of the Amplius team will discuss a topic or idea. And on other episodes, we will invite an outside guest that has some particular insights or expertise. We really hope you enjoy the show. And like always with Amplius, if you have suggestions as to how we can make things better, please let us know. As a reminder, nothing on this episode should be taken as legal, tax, or investment advice. Tax, legal, and investment advice topics should be discussed one-on-one with the appropriate advisor. Thank you. Welcome to episode nine of the Wealth Amplifier podcast. Uh, Joining me today, I'm Matt Liebman. We have Aaron Marks and Patrick Swift, the usual podcast crew, no outside interview today. Uh, today's main topic, though I'm sure we'll go into a few other topics, is capital markets. They're really unpredictable, or are they? Um, I feel like someone needs to put in some music now to uh, uh, after that. But essentially, uh, are capital markets as unpredictable as they seem, or is there more of a rhythm and a pattern to them? And that's what we're going to discuss. So maybe to that end, and Aaron, Pat, whoever wants to jump in, why don't you share some things that have surprised you about 2023 year to date in the tap capital markets and maybe as a result of, of the topic of the day some things that have not surprised you well we all know last year uh, and again aaron here had uh, good to be back been a little while uh, had a little break but um we all know 2022 was a bit of a rough year all around and uh you know before we were doing some prep and looking at some early 2023 predictions, which, you know, we we could talk a bit about that, but uh, it's been a good year. It's been a good year. And uh, there was a lot of nerves coming in. Uh, We talk about, just like Matt said, unpredictable markets, where are things going? You know, there's never just a market goes up 7% in a year kind of year. It's either up 20, down 20, and, you know, never really calm and boring. But so far this year, it's been a little calm and boring and better than expected. And, um, Maybe unpredictability doesn't really happen. Transitory, yeah. we, 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 we talked about this, you know, a lot is transitory in this world and, and maybe bear markets are transitory. We move past them and um, markets go up over time and it's simple as that. Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, the, there are different stats that um, I think we've all seen used that measure length of bear markets and length of <clears throat> uh, bull markets and putting the two together and, uh, what what term always uh, throws me for a loop is uh, what, what a normal cycle is like. What the heck is a cycle anyway? For for what it's worth, but I think some of those stats point to like bear markets on average two to two to three years on on a, in terms of length, um, dating back to like World War Two and bull markets lasting closer to five to seven years. So that proves your point, Aaron, in that if normally we're sort of permanently on the upside then bear markets are truly sort of transitory, which is the term that's been thrown around a lot around usually economic events, but maybe to your point, yeah, bear markets are are transitory. I think uh, some of the context too that we internally threw around <clears throat> for the idea around this episode was coming into the year, stocks had in 2023, that is, stocks had started to rally a little bit from their lows in 2022, right around the October timeframe in, in the last quarter of 2022, but I think there were the sentiment, and and I'd argue the sentiment still is, and maybe always is, 
um, a little bit negative, but coming into the year, we were, we were coming off one of the worst, uh, negative years, um, for uh, stocks sort of broadly, both in the U S and abroad. And, uh, the sentiment was that that may continue. And with, for the first time in 10 to 12 years, interest rates yielding something competitive, the risk-free rate around four four to 5%, maybe you're better off continuing to sit out stocks if they're going to, if they're going to be lousy. And as we fast forward now into July of 2023, it's sort of that wisdom of, well, that didn't work out so well. Yeah, you might have clipped a nice coupon from risk-free bonds over the last six and seven months, but you would have done way better if you had exposure to stocks. And that's that's kind of the crux and the idea here is when it always seems obvious, it, it never is, right? So, and that's that's, I think, caught people by surprise. But to Matt's point around the title is, Maybe we shouldn't have been surprised because you know what happens usually when stocks go down a lot, they usually rebound at some point. Um, so maybe we shouldn't be so so surprised. If, if, if it were like 1950 right now, we could say, you know, we haven't really had much of a track record to know what is normal. You know, it's like 100 years now. Like we sort of know. <laughs> so we've seen some markets. So let me uh, be the stereotypical cranky Gen Xer and, and, and flip this around on its head a little bit. Uh, the other thing that's predictable is the mirror image of that, the euphoria side. We talked about the despair, and you're right. You know, everybody seems to get most negative at the bottom. But let's go back to Pat's example. You're sitting there in December of 2022, let's say fourth quarter 2022 markets, I think, bottomed in October. And you could say, well, now I can get almost 5%. Uh, now you can get 5%, but then almost 5% on, on, let's say, safe treasuries. Let's put the debt ceiling to the side for a minute, pretend that they are, in fact, safe. And why do I want to deal with stock market risk? And to Pat's point, uh, that, that mindset was perfectly logical and defensible. And if you did that, you got more than the 0% you used to get. You didn't necessarily lose money if you weren't going short, but you failed to, to make the money that stocks have offered so far this year. So let's flip that on its head. Now we're sitting here at mid-year. You can now get 5 to 6% uh, on, that, on that one year, uh, let's say on one-year treasury. And stocks are now up 20, 25, in the case of the NASDAQ, even more. But let's say 20, 25% from their lows. But now you hear very few people making the same arguments they were making in December. It's almost like, Rates are higher, markets are higher, therefore more expensive. So if you were going to take that stance in December, you should, I would think you would want to take it in June, but you don't hear many people doing that. So I guess maybe this is a, I don't know where I'm going with this, but maybe it's a segue back to the topic we always talk about, which is behavioral finance. Yeah. But is it really that uh, <clears throat> markets, capital markets either are or are not predictable, but humans sort of are? Uh, and and that when when things go down, they expect them to go down more, which is almost always the wrong approach. And when things go up, there tends to be a little more euphoria, which which over time may work to be long, but in the short term, maybe maybe it's a little overstretched. It's a it's a good point, and actually, it's a good segue into a question I, I wanted to ask you guys coming into uh, today. So I'll, I'll I'll pose it now. Because Matt, you're right, and and it's part of the the media doom loop and the fact that usually what makes headlines, what makes news, is a lot of the more negative sentiment, or at least surprising and bold claims, which often skew negative, and that's why people pay attention to them. Yep. So we're sitting here again, a little more than midway through the year, almost seven months through the year, and stocks in the U.S. are up big. Obviously, tech stocks have have led the charge a little bit. Nasdaq's up thirty four, thirty five percent. The S and P's up eighteen, nineteen percent on the year. If stocks continue to climb higher as they have this year, let's say we finish the year with the S and P 500 around 
let's say 20 to 25%, which by the way, was a prediction I had at the end of last year, just saying. Um, and, and, and your risk-free rate sticks around 5%. Maybe it goes even a little higher uh, with a couple more hikes and, and, you, and you have um, room for even higher interest if you're buying corporate bonds and things like that. Is this, is 2023, if we finish the year with, let's call it a five handle on treasuries short term and a 25% finish in the S&P 500, is this the best year in capital markets ever? Maybe not ever, mm. but sort of broadly the last 20 years. I think Matt will have a better answer than I will on that one. Wait, wait so let's, let, let me make sure I'm framing the question right here. So just as 2022 was the worst year in capital markets when you combine both stocks and bonds because the bond market was so bad, that would 2023 be maybe one of the best because you would have, you'd make money on cash be, or let's say short-term bonds. Even long-term bonds have been reasonably innocuous so far this year and you'd make big money on stocks. So would that make 2023 one of the, certainly be one of the better years. I imagine off of uglier lows, you know, like a, a, a 2000, well, even like a 2009, you know, I think uh, the markets, they started out down. I think they might've wound up up in the twenties, maybe 26% rings a bell, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but I think bond markets were down that year because rates went up a little bit. So yeah, if you if you combine the two, it would be a, a heck of a year for the uh, for the capital markets twenty twenty three. If if that's how we finish. So then, Aaron, if that is the case, do you think the media gloats and uh, provides us any headlines around twenty twenty three being one of the best years ever? Never, never. <laughs> no, please, no. Instead, we'll, we'll, instead, we'll, we'll hear about why it's all going to end. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this, uh, we've, we've already answered my question here, but speaking in human about human behavior again and being, you know, everything's going down the tubes when the market's horrible and when the market's going crazy to the upside, there's all this euphoria. For the person that says to you halfway through the year, hey, look, my financial plan says I need, I don't know, 8% per year return. And we're in June, July, August, and, and we're up 10, we're up 12, we're up 15. Do we just get out of the market? Do we just kind of sit on the sidelines and see what happens? Because um, if things drop, you know, why don't we just lock it in? What do you guys say to that? Pat, you want to go first? Do you want my uh, answer on this one? No, I, I think you'd be the good candidate to answer this from an asset allocation and uh, discipline standpoint. So I think the the other side of Aaron's point would be the adage that's been out there for a while, which is, just always stay long the market. Or, you know, when where it became popularized in the last 40 years with a uh, rather large neighboring firm to our location here is just own the S&P 500 and forget about it. And to me, what that argument misses uh, of just own the S&P 500 or some index of the S&P is the one that's most often quoted, is we are all humans and that in and of itself is a bet as well. Anytime you make a financial decision, you are taking a position. If that position is, I want to be 100% stocks all the time, so be it, but that's a position. Uh, the same way getting out of the market is a position. So I, I don't think, to me, this idea of, and this is me going off on my own uh, soapbox here, but this idea of a, uh, of a passive investment is sort of a misnomer and, and, and kind of a false concept that, that I do believe every human is making an active decision at all times, even if that active decision is to own the S&P 500 and do nothing. Which, by the way, 
has been really good over time. There have other things that have been even better. And there have been times where that's been a disaster, which everybody with, uh, let's say, uh, short-term market memory issues forgets that, you know, from 2000 to 2009, it was a pretty miserable time to just own the S&P 500. So, and, and, there were, and there were other places where it wasn't a lost decade. But back to your question, Aaron, I'll, I'll rant over. Now back to your uh, topic. Um, I, I think this is where the human side comes in. And I think the answer is often, in, at least in my opinion, a little bit of a middle ground, which is just because the market is up does not mean it's going down. Just because you have reached your, let's say, financial pl planning target for the full year in the first five months does not mean you need to take everything off the table for a couple of reasons. One, month to month, quarter to quarter, markets are, are unpredictable. So what you don't want to do is miss out on those big years. As you mentioned before, uh, I think it was Aaron at the outset was saying that markets over time average, let's say that 8 to 10% return, but they almost never return 8 to 10%. It's plus 30, minus 20, you know, and you eventually get there. So given that, you don't want to miss out if this could wind up being one of those years like Pat spoke about. You don't want to miss out on, on any upside from here. But at the same time, I, I think it doesn't advocate for just saying, well, I'm just going to set it and forget it. I think what, what at least what we advocate for is recognizing the fact that we're humans, recognizing the, the fact that we're all flawed investors. Every human that, that, that has ever bought a penny of anything has some flaws, even, even the greatest investors. And so when you get these really strong starts to the year, you maintain discipline. You don't follow the crowd and get euphoric and add to more stocks, but you don't run out of everything. But maybe what you do is you trim some areas that have run up a little bit. You rebalance to your overall plan, your asset allocation, so that if you started the year and your target equity exposure on your financial plan was 60%, and you're now sitting there at 67% because things have shot up, bring it back to 60. I'm not saying go to zero, but you know, do a little bit of risk management and risk control. So don't buy NVIDIA right now. <laughs> As you know, you will never hear me advocate for buying or selling an individual stock. Not my game. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I'm happy to own a lot of indices that have benefited nicely from NVIDIA this year. So, you know, uh, sounds good to me. But no, I, <laughs> I, am, uh, I, I have no opinion on NVIDIA. Yeah, fair enough. I think I, I, I would uh, agree with everything that you just said, Matt. And <clears throat> to your question too, Aaron, like... There's so much variability in someone's financial plan, and, and we have to remind clients of this sometimes because your question is one we get, and I think it's a normal, logical one for people to ask. Is if I've hit my return target for the year, why take? Why continue to take additional risk? And it's it's the idea that there's already so much in a financial plan that we really don't have control over. We don't have control over inflation. We don't have control necessarily over your rate of return year over year. We don't have control over. Um, you know, how much we think what, what's going to change with social security and other inputs that by making major changes to your investment strategy, like it's time for me to sit out of markets for this short period of time, that introduces a, a, a brand new sort of higher degree of variability in that markets continue to chug higher. The old behavioral notion, if you were to sell all your stocks right now is, okay, well now, well, now when do you get back in? Because we need that, hist whatever historic rate of return we're using for someone's financial plan, five, six, seven percent. The reason why we're getting to that is because you're participating in both the up and down sides of markets. So just kind of driving home the point Matt was making. Um, but I think that's another reason as to why you can't just say, 
I've, I've achieved my return. Now let's get out. That's just going to really introduce a whole lot more variability that we don't want. And you uh, get on the other side too. Market's down 10% and you know, it's last year mm-hmm. and it's easy to say now, but writing on the wall, it's, it's, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Let's get out now and buy back in later when it's lower. Well, it, it's the human emotion. If you don't, if you're not comfortable when the market's down 10, you're not going to be investing when the market's down 20 or 30. And it's just like Matt said, it's bet after bet after bet. You are making a decision to get out. And if you get out, do you start back on January 1st? You know, just because the earth went around the sun, the one, okay, January 1st, we begin again. That has nothing to do with markets and economies and, you know, equities and interest rates. So yeah, bet after bet after bet is not a good way to go about um, your financial planning. Yeah. So let me flip this a little bit again. Uh, uh, I feel like uh, not to be the uh, uh, Gen X uh, a cranky person here, but one thing we have done recently is we have put on some investments with some downside protection. You know, whether that is buying into an ETF that has some sort of buffer on the downside, some structure notes that that, that we have done, uh, and we're just reducing exposure to the example I gave a few minutes ago, which was purely hypothetical, but you start the year at 60% stocks, go up to 65, 67, bring it back down to 60. So I have seen others argue that all of these products that have any downside protection are um, silly. They don't have a purpose because to your point that you made at the outset, I think it was Aaron, you know, bear markets tend to be transitory, bull markets tend to be more permanent. So why am I going to cut off some of my upside? Because there's no free lunch, there's always a trade-off to protect some of my downside. Yet we are in fact doing that. So I have my reasons, but I'd love to hear from the two of you. Why do you think we still do that? We're not saying run for the hills and get out, but why take a little defense when things have gone up a bit? And uh, well, I'll steal a page out of something I've heard you say to clients a billion times, Matt, and I, I won't say it as eloquently, um, I'm certain, but there's, you can tell a client, you can show a client, you want to achieve the highest possible return. You know, I can show you what asset allocation and what investment mix would get you there historically. But if you're likely to bail on that investment strategy because you can't stomach the ups and downs or the changes in your portfolio, that's not doing you any good. Um, so I'd rather you take less risk in the form of stocks or another asset class and provide some 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 buffer there. And if that's going to keep you in the game versus punching yourself out, then we're, we, we'd prefer to go that route. And I think for me, that's where some of those investments, whether you want to just call them broadly asset classes that should perform better in, in down markets or specific uh, products that allow you to, 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 to uh, have some built-in downside protection, I think they make sense for behavioral reasons so that we can point to, you know, sometimes clients need, and I'm, I'm, we're all human too, for us, we need something to point to as a win. Hey, we, we didn't, everything's a risk management game to some extent. We didn't know this was going to happen. We didn't know AI was uh, not going to be making any money 12 months from now. And now no one wants to own anything AI. That's not a prediction. That's just a hypothetical, although I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and hey, now we have downside protection as a result of that. Great. Everyone was clamoring that this is going to be the best thing in the world and it's going to only go up from here. We took some other side of that. And now, now it's worked out well. It helps, I think, during you know, negative times for people to see that, okay, that, that will, it's a good thing we had some risk parameter in there. We had some risk control in, in uh, the portfolio for that. So for me, I think the, the behavioral piece, like anything, ends up being as large as the fundamental piece. But it's also a little easier to make that call now when 
the non-equity alternative, or one of the non-equity alternatives is go buy something that's yielding five, five and a half percent. You know, that's, right, that's, exactly. if interest rates were zero and it was stock or zero, you're making a bet. Stock or something yielding five or six percent, still a bet, but okay, I can deal with five or six percent. Uh, it's close to guaranteed as you can be, you know, U.S. Treasuries and things like that. And and I think to that end, and a line I've I've often used is part of our job is not necessarily to maximize your wealth, but to minimize the likelihood that you won't be wealthy. You know, and and uh, we we do only get uh, uh, each one turn around here, and uh, and and you know you, you never know what life's going to bring. So I do think I'll go back to a conversation I had early on in my wealth management career after coming over from the asset management and hedge fund side. I sat down uh, with uh, with one of my uh, one of my dad's long term clients, who I'm sure is still listening to this podcast because he's an avid listener. But for confidentiality reasons, I won't mention his name, but he knows who he is. Uh, and I said, "Look, I, I have a general idea in your profession of what you made over the years, and I can see all the wealth that you have. Tell me your secret." Uh, what, what, what? And he said, "It was a conversation that I had with your dad very early on." Uh, which was basically three rules. One of them you'll remember from a past podcast episode. He said, this account's a one-way street. Money goes in, doesn't come out. But then he said after that, the other two rules were when everybody's euphoric and things are uh, are running straight up, you know, everybody wants things so badly, give them a little bit, meaning sell a little bit. And when everybody's running for the hills and they're dumping all their stocks, if they're so desperate to sell them, it's only nice of you to be on the other side of that trade and to be a buyer. Uh, so again, not to be pure contrarian, not to go from 0% stocks to 100, but I do think there is a behavioral advantage time in the market by essentially uh, reducing risk when things go up a little bit and adding to risk a little bit after they've gone down. Yeah. And not <clears throat> not putting full bore into talking heads, which we've talked about a million times, but I was mentioning it to both you guys before we jumped on a couple headlines I saved from the beginning of the year. And uh, Jeremy Grantham, who's a very well-known strategist and uh, the head of GMO, which is a big asset management firm, was calling for a, another 17% downside in the S&P. Did you say 17? 17, one seven. And he didn't rule out in the same prediction, the S&P falling to uh, the 2000 level uh, potentially this year. So nothing against Jeremy Grantham. He's been a very successful investor and has uh, made a lot of great calls. It's just one that if our clients had stuck to would be pretty, pretty, pretty disastrous when it comes to achieving their goals. But aside from that, so I, I wanted to segue real quick to um, something we also kicked around for this episode. And it really, it kind of comes back to what Matt was talking about in the beginning of what, what has been sort of predictable this year, what has been unpredictable I would say what's been sort of a surprise is the sort of velocity at which we've had a, a rebounding stock market from last year, and more so what has led the market higher. Um, and maybe it's not that much of a surprise because we did write an article about this sort of next trend of investing, but there is certain a degree, certainly a degree of this AIification zeitgeist we're seeing in our society um, being a, a big driver of the incumbents in the in at least the U.S., the Apples and the Googles and the Microsoft have sort of led the market higher, uh, and I think some of that comes from this fascination with this new uh, maybe I hesitate to call it a trend, but this new uh, industry that's developing, and that's why Nvidia and the chip makers are all up in that kind of stuff. It comes back to things we've talked about <clears throat> before, in that, 
and we're starting to hear from clients and colleagues and friends and family, I'm sure I, I know I am, is what do you think about this? What do you think about AI and how should I play this? And what stock should I buy? And what ETF, now you're seeing ETFs come out that track you know, the AI trend so that people can buy them. It's the same old stuff we've seen over and over. And it comes back to something, Aaron, you had mentioned, which is that investing really should not be a form of entertainment. I think it is for a lot of people. And how, like, how do you coach out of that? Because um, because again, we just got crushed by the Bitcoin bubble a couple of years ago, and now we've got another potential trend on our horizon. So how do you how do you well, monitor that? One one caveat to that: we didn't get crushed by the Bitcoin <laughs> bubble. The the royal we of the markets right. did. Uh, but anyway, right. go ahead. <laughs> right, the obsession, I should say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, just because investing is accessible, trading can be free because your friend does it and it's on CNBC doesn't mean it should be a competition. And, and it, it's, um, it's, uh, it's risky. You get plenty of other things to entertain you in life. Your financial plans and livelihood and being able to retire and give to charity and your kids, that, that shouldn't be what your, uh, your hobby, I'm sorry, well, those should be your hobbies, you know, giving to kids and charities. But the investing is not a hobby in the sense it should take all your time and all of your interest. And you're making bets and you're being competitive with it. Let the financial plan drive that. Have a level head. Don't try to keep up with the Joneses and beat the next guy and beat the benchmark just because. Yeah, it's perfectly right. said. It's harder to harder harder to follow than than uh, than it is to say, but it's the truth. And, you know, we, we've promised on these uh, podcast episodes to get, keep them under half an hour. So we're up at about 25 minutes now. So maybe uh, you want to, Aaron, do you want to go to uh, any articles, books, movies? What, what do you want to go over in the last five minutes? So we'll do a couple things here. We'll, we'll have them quick hitting, try to be done within a half an hour total. I've got a couple of article headlines that uh, we did this last time. Matt and Patrick have not heard them yet. Give me your quick reaction. I, of course, will give you mine. It could be sports. It could be worldly events. Uh, but, but the first one I saw that uh, caught my attention and I had an immediate reaction to, uh, headline from CNBC, IRS halts most, un most unannounced visits to taxpayers, citing safety concerns. Reaction. Wait, so this is the IRS does not, is, is not, I didn't know the IRS made unannounced visits to taxpayers. Well, so that, that was my initial reaction and saying, the IRS just knocks on people's door and says, I want to like go over your books. I've Apparently, never heard I, I picture like the catch me, catch me if you can guy with the hat and the notebook <laughs> and they knock at your door and like, who wants to be doing Found that? Out. What kind of, why do you want to be approaching the people that aren't paying their taxes? And this is, oh, there's safety concerns. Like who would have thought? Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, I know in our business, regulators will show up, you know, when sometimes there are surprise audits, planned audits, all that stuff, which is fine for a business. I didn't know they were knocking on people's doors, though. Uh, I thought they would, you know, send a letter. You you send a letter back. I don't know. But uh. Patch just still in shock. He hasn't said that. <laughs> I'm in shock. Maybe this, and I know there were some, I don't want to call them conspiracy theorists, but when they announced part of the Inflation Reduction Act that they were going to be adding funding to the IRS. And, and I forget how many agents they were planning to hire, but uh, there was a lot of discussion around these, like there's going to be armed IRS guards that come in and like force you to pay your taxes. They're all, all going to be on segues with the, you know. <laughs> <around>. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, um, moving on to the next one. Yeah, next two, one. two more quick ones. Uh, this one I don't think we're going to have a lot of controversy over. Look, we don't want to be political, and this should be bipartisan. But new bill would fine Congress members for trading stocks and uh, and owning blind trusts. <clears throat> Finally, All right, I, I'm taking the lead on this one. This is the most overdue bill in the history of, uh, of like, how is it that this hasn't been a law since the beginning? I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, or have no interest. How can the people making the decisions uh, that affect the performance of companies, the economy, and so on, be able to trade in those same companies in their accounts? This is It's preposterous that it took this long, and I guess uh, here, here that they're finally passing it. Yeah, and I'll stick up for the rich executives in our country for a quick second, which usually are the poster children of being beat up in the headlines. Some of them are our clients, of course, as well. But there are so much regulatory um, sort of restrictions around executives and their sort of, I know, and I know there's all kinds of fraud that constantly gets sussed out, but these plans that have blackout restrictions and most of your executives at large companies within a publicly traded, they have to be enrolled in what are called 10B51 plans so that they right. can't trade the t- stock. They enter in a legal contract uh, prior to their sales to actually be able to dispose of any stock. So that, that stuff's been in existence for decades for you know your private executives. And the fact that there hasn't been as much, I know there has been recently with, with recent headlines, but there hasn't been as much clamoring on, on our, uh, our public servants for, until now. It's, yeah, it's preposterous and it's, it's long overdue. Uh, last one here. So on the uh, on the sports front, I don't, you know, I know both of you are NFL fans, and um, there's been some talk about the running backs that they're distraught about they can't get deals and you know they're not valued. So so uh, headline: Star NFL running backs meet on Zoom to talk about the financial state of the position. I have some reactions. I will I will take yours first if you have any. Well, Pat, go I- ahead. I'll jump in real quick. As a Giants fan, Barkley might be the leader of the pack in some of the headlines that have gone on. Um, I, I see it two sides. I, I, I'm not an NFL executive. I don't have all the numbers at my hand. But just as an NFL fan, the, the shelf life, the, the longevity of running backs is probably the poorest of any position in the league. So I get the the economic concerns and the financial concerns that executives have. At the same time, I as a fan – uh, of Saquon Barkley, I do feel for these guys a little bit because they're maybe risking more if as much, if not more than any other position on the field when it comes to their health. And they certainly have gotten the short end of the stick in recent years. And a guy like Saquon who stuck through some really tough years for the Giants and was great in the community and great in the locker room and great as a leader, that stuff, I think as a former athlete too, that counts for something. So it's it just kind of sucks to see when they don't get, you know, when think the tables have turned against them, it seems. I'll take the other side. Uh, <laughs> so, no, I, in general, I, I agree with with your sentiment. To me, though, the real way to address this is not that the owners should do something different because I think they have a collective bargaining agreement. They they settle as a union with with the owners uh, as to what the revenue share is going to be, but. I think this is where the union could step up. If you think that running backs are undervalued, but the overall pool of money to players is something you've agreed to, then as a union, kick more of the money to the running backs. Put in more retiree benefits for running backs. Like I, I feel like if the unions negotiated a deal that they agreed to with, with the ownership and they're all making this big pile of money and we're only really talking about how to divide it up, I think the union could take care of both their current and former running backs more if they wanted to, but I don't think it's on the executives to do anything. 
Both well said. I, I won't uh, harp on any of those topics or, or those uh, points because I I, uh, I do agree. And like it's it's a capitalist. It's a free market society. The one thing I will say after I said I won't continue on. Um, look, if if you think you're worth it, go prove it. Right? It, it ebbs and flows, just like everything, just like the stock market. Uh, you know, running backs aren't getting paid now. Well, go prove it, and then you'll get paid. And I'm sure that time will come. And you know. God forbid, maybe the quarterbacks aren't the most valuable, but maybe one day they're not. I, I don't know. But uh, th- those are my three topics for the day. And we, we can hit a couple personal things real quick. And, and for those of you who are watching uh, a YouTube, we do have a YouTube channel for those who uh, don't know that. You all can see in our videos here, we have some nice hockey sweaters. I was going to say jerseys, but, you know, trying to be a <laughs> hockey guy. Patrick, you want to talk about yeah. these? Yeah, sure. Good plug. So we, uh, every year I'm a former ice hockey player, um, uh, last few years uh, for a, a while now I participate in a, a charity hockey tournament. I think it's one of the best tournaments in the country, uh, for, for adults. Um, and it's called checking for charity. It takes place in South Jersey every year. I, I don't quote me on the numbers, but there's, I don't know, almost a hundred teams. I want to say that participate across a bunch of different levels and ages. It's an excellent event. A ton of money gets raised for charity. Uh, so we put in a team every year. We needed new jerseys. We needed a new team uh, for this year. So Amplius as a firm is sponsoring some jerseys and we're going to be giving away, um, hopefully if we win and do well, a bunch of money to some charities that we hold dear. But uh, yeah, these are the jerseys you're seeing. We um, we ordered a couple for uh, some of the Amplius employees and you'll notice it's cool for us. I don't know if anyone else cares. The numbers that we put on the back that correspond for Matt, Aaron, myself, and, and Sam uh, correspond to the year that we – or the date we started Amplius, which is uh, February 26, 2021. Um, so, yeah, it's a quick, quick plug. If anybody wants to come out see some old guys try and play hockey still, um, yeah. the dates are – it's the second weekend of August, so whatever those dates are, 11th through 13th at um, the Skate Zone in Voorhees and Pensauken. Oh, cool. I know that place. Yeah. Uh, so before we run here, uh, just real quick, uh, one uh, book, movie, or TV show recommendation? Uh, I'm watching. We'll stay on sports. I've been watching the uh, the Netflix quarterback show documentary, whatever you call it. They follow around uh, three quarterbacks, uh, Patrick Mahomes, Marcus Mariota, Kirk Cousins. I, I really don't care much to see much of the the game film, and half the the episode is in the game. It's it's the studying, it's the pain they go through, their families. I find it very cool. What I find very difficult though is watching Patrick Mahomes, um, because I know he inevitably beats the Eagles in the Super Bowl. So every time he comes <laughs> on the screen, I get very annoyed and angry. But uh, it, it's cool. It, it's neat to see behind the scenes. He's a hard guy to to, to uh, dislike, though. He's, and that's the he's tricky so damn part. Good and so damn likable. I mean, yeah. that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what about you, Pat? Um, I'll go with a book. I was just on vacation last week. I read uh, "No Country for Old Men" by Cormac McCarthy. Shout out to the late Cormac. Um, awesome book. And then I also just started a book called "House of Leaves," which my brother introduced to me. It's this like it's got this cult following. I don't. I won't be able to do it justice in a thirty-second summary, but people should go check it out. Basically, it's a fictional book. Uh, it's written by a guy named Mark Danieluski, but it's about basically like a a house that is the subject of a fictional documentary that a man who was blind was writing about. So he never even could have, could have seen the documentary, but he's writing about. And this person who finds the dead old guy 
finishes the transcript form. So it's this crazy tangle of events and like multi storylines going on at once. And it's got this crazy cult following. Uh, just started reading it. It's very intriguing. It's a little scary too. It's got like a horror side to it. So wow. that's my work. All right. Then I'll do one of each, uh, a book. Um, uh, what's it called? Look for me there. It's a Luke Russert's uh, uh, sort of memoir. And I was a big fan of his dad back in the day on Meet the Press, who died suddenly at a fairly young age. And it talks about how Luke, who was like 22, sort of all of a sudden gets thrust into being a network TV star, you know, on the heels of his dad's death, and then walks away from all of it at 30 and just like, I'm, I'm out. And then <laughs> and traveled the world. And it's just, it's an interesting book. Uh, and then on the TV show front, uh, this is more a, a, a plea, a plug, if someone could help me. Um, I the, the final season of Jack Ryan was just on, I think it's on Netflix, Prime. I forget wh which one it's on. Um, if somebody watches it and tells me what the heck happened, that would be great. <laughs> I, I, I love the first few seasons of the show, and I found this season to be very convoluted. Uh, so uh, so uh, th that's that's my ask. If you watch it, let me know exactly what happened, because there were a lot of... <laughs> I, I, I didn't watch it, but all I know is you better be careful with those words. Jack Ryan's going to like come through the window and knock you <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> that's right. Like right. That. Yeah, you got to be careful. Um, <laughs> all right. With that, we will uh, wrap up. Thanks for listening, and, and feel free to share this episode with anybody you think would find it helpful, and we'll be back again. Again next month. Thank you. Thanks. Guys. Thank you, everybody.